Hey, it's Mercedes. Welcome to the West Block podcast. Everyone says they don't want an election in the middle of a pandemic. And yet this week, once again, Canadians were on the edge of their seats, wondering if a self-inflicted confidence vote will cause the government to fail and go to the polls. So if everyone says an election is not in Canadians' interests and too dangerous, why do we keep pursuing down this path? And is it going to become the default for the government going forward? Anytime they don't like a question, are they simply going to threaten a confidence vote? The Conservatives say that the motion they put forward for an anti-corruption committee is necessary to look into the WE controversy. The Liberals say it drips of lack of confidence and that's why they challenged it to a vote. Meanwhile, the NDP once again propping up the government, they say to save Canadians from a pandemic election. But how long will this go on and how will we have accountability on Parliament Hill? As Prime Minister Justin Trudeau seems to be taking on more Harper-like tactics as we go. Joining me now to unpack all of this and what it means is conservative strategist Melissa Lansman. We are also joined by Robin McLaughlin, an NDP strategist, and Richard Mahoney, liberal strategist. Thanks for coming on, guys. What a crazy week uh, on Parliament Hill. We've seen confidence votes before in minority governments. I've never seen one over the creation of a committee. Richard, everyone says they don't want an election, and yet here we are playing chicken with the prospect of an election. Why did the Liberal government do this? So, yeah, I mean, a really good question, because folks watching at home are probably thinking, an election? What election? Why are we having an election? So I think a couple things are going on. One, the government was focused on COVID exclusively until towards the end of June, uh, when they realized the CERB, which they had rolled out very quickly, um, you know, to eight or nine million Canadians, didn't cover students. So they unveil a program. Uh, to cover students. They proposed to outsource it to WE. Within a week, they reversed that decision and canceled the program. And then we have a series of uh, uh, parliamentary committees over the summer looking into that and how it happened, all the mechanics of it. The prime minister testified, everybody testified. Um, and so, of course, the opposition wants to go more into that. And, of course, the Liberals want to focus more on what they're trying to do. So the Conservatives quite smartly, I guess be the way to say it, come up with this idea for an anti-corruption committee, a new committee, on top of the other two committees that are already investigating the WE scandal. Um, and they call it the anti-corruption committee. The, so, so that was a gambit. And they probably knew when they made that gambit that the prime minister had a choice on how to handle this. They probably, at least the ones I talked to, were conservatives were a little surprised that the the Prime Minister made it a confidence motion, but essentially he took the position that is, if you're calling a government corrupt, how is it that you're going to vote confidence in that government to keep on uh, working for Canadians? So in the end, I think the Prime Minister was sort of signaling he's not going to let the opposition parties, which they can do in a minority parliament, totally run the table on him and decide what it is that they will investigate and what they won't investigate and what it is that parliament will spend its time on and won't. So, okay, Melissa, is in the, the end, is, I think the Prime Minister probably... Go ahead, sir. Go ahead, finish, Richard. Yeah, so in the end, I think the Prime Minister probably, uh, you know, it was a, a win for him, uh, as you said that. But I don't think, and we'll get into this, I don't think it was um, a huge setback for any of the opposition parties. I think each of them were trying to do their uh, their job as partisans. 
as well as they're looking ahead, all of them to the election, all, all the parties are. And so, you know, it is what it is. I mean, we saw these kind of maneuvers a lot when Mr. Harper faced minority parliaments. We haven't seen Mr. Trudeau have to do them or do them. But I'm not that surprised by it, and I don't think anyone should be, even if that doesn't make a lot of sense uh, to folks at home. Uh, it's it's pretty counter-brand from how the Liberals had sold themselves with transparency and accountability, although I guess there's accountability in, in trying to trigger a vote. Melissa, do you think this becomes the new tactic, that whenever the government is confronted with scrutiny they don't want, they will threaten to go to an election and try to twist the NDP's arm into keeping them in power? Well, I, I the beginnings of what you saw. I think this was very much a trial balloon for the Liberals who claim they didn't want an election, but, uh, you know, I, I think there's reason to believe uh, without, you know, and, and put the NDP, frankly, on their back foot uh, uh, in, in supporting them. So effectively running a, uh, a majority. But to frame this as a game or chicken or parliamentary antics, I think is where uh, is where actually everybody is wrong. I think there's a serious issue here that the government has spent hundreds of billions of dollars throughout this pandemic. There hasn't been a budget. There hasn't been the ability to scrutinize uh, that spending through uh, through Parliament. Uh, you know what Richard forgot to say is that they actually prorogued this to stop investigating the Wee scandal, brought it back, saying we will be accountable and then, you know, call a confidence motion on something that we've never had a confidence motion on, or at least not in the last uh, 150 years. Robin, where does this leave the NDP? Because they back the government saying it's too dangerous to have an election, despite the fact the United States is having an election, three different provinces are having elections. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're not polling well, so I can understand not wanting the government to fall. But how long can they balance that between holding on to some influence and some power and just becoming essentially the people who are propping the government up? Well, I'd say the NDP had Canadians' backs. Canadians don't want an election. They're, they're quite scared. They know they're mostly in a second wave across Canada, uh, and they're worried that the government may not be there when they need them. So Melissa's right that this is a serious issue. The problem for the Conservatives and the Liberals was they didn't take a serious approach. Uh, the Conservatives overplayed their hand by trying to label this an anti-corruption committee rather than trying to get a committee that could hold the government to account because Liberals were filibustering, they were stonewalling, they, they were deliberately trying to ensure the opposition couldn't get the answers they wanted to hold the government to account. So thank goodness there was an adult in the room in Jagmeet Singh and the NDP uh, and he voted to make Parliament work because that's what Canadians want. It has worked uh, to a large extent during this pandemic and it's been the NDP that actually fought for uh, benefits for students uh, to strengthen the service and benefits for unemployed and to ensure that there's sick benefits for Canadians that might have COVID or can't work so they don't take COVID to work. That's making Parliament work. Richard, do you believe that the Liberals do want an election? It sure seems like they're trying to provoke one with three confidence votes back to back. No, I don't think so. But I do think the other side of that is I do think they're probably ready to fight one if they have to. Um, I think they understand. I think all the parties understand that Canadians would be wary about an election right now. But as you said in your in a previous question, uh, other elections are going on. The American election are, are, is going on. BC is having one. New Brunswick just had one. So if we have to have one, we I think the Liberals are prepared to it. I don't think they want one. And I don't think, um, yeah, I mean, sure, there were some back and forth going on. But there, there are, there is lots of, uh, and I think Melissa's got a good point. Obviously, the government has to come forward with an economic statement and then a budget. We have unprecedented spending, and it's going to need parliamentary approval. But okay, this committee just... wasn't about that. This committee about scoring a partisan political point. Uh, well, and finding out what was in those we documents, which 
which we now don't know what's in them. And a lot of people are wondering why the government wouldn't just turn them over. We just have a few moments left, so I want to go quickly to Melissa and to Robin. Do you foresee us getting through the rest of 2020 without an election? Uh, it doesn't. It certainly doesn't look like that. I think the uh, the liberals uh, see see this as an opportunity to uh, uh, to frankly go out to the electorate. They saw uh, they saw a majority government a majority incumbent uh, in in uh, in New Brunswick. Uh, we are probably seeing uh, a majority government for Mr. Horgan in uh, in BC, and uh, the cards are still aligned for them. Where we haven't had the economic fallout that I think we're going to have uh, in the next six to eight months. So why not go to that electorate? it now. It's a wise calculation. But to say that you don't want one uh, and consistently call for uh, for confidence, I, I mean, soon we'll be having confidence motions around question period until we just go to election. Robin? I sure hope we can. And there's really no reason that we can't get through this year and, uh, to be frank, through to the budget, because that's what the NDP's got their eyes on, is the budget. I mean, that's what matters. The throne speech was ambitious. Talked about pharmacare, childcare, protecting the most vulnerable among us. And the budget is where we're going to be able to do that. So we should we should be able to see Parliament work. But what we saw this past week uh, is concerning because it kind of casts a shadow over this Parliament. It's like a poison pill into this Parliament. How do you negotiate in good faith with a government you know doesn't want to be here and doesn't like this parliament. Okay, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for Thanks a lot. Enough of the shenanigans on Parliament Hill. Let's look south of the border, which has been uh, quite an eventful week. And we are now just over one week away from the actual presidential election. Before we dive into that, take a listen to what U.S. President Donald Trump had to say at a campaign rally in North Carolina on Wednesday. The only thing we do to make them totally crazy is we say 12 more years because you trust them. Right? Then they say, see, he is a fascist. Ah, oh, they've covered me. They've covered me every way. They've said, he is so stupid. Then they say, he's not really smart. Then they say, he's trying to take over the entire country. The presidential election is now just over one week away. Ahead of that, we wanted to get some insight into Donald Trump's mind, what might happen, and how this could all affect America's relationship with Canada. So I sat down with somebody who used to have the president's ear in the Oval Office and on the national security file, former national security advisor, Ambassador John Bolton. Here is that interview. Ambassador Bolton, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us this morning. Glad to be with you. Sir, you've stated that you don't believe President Trump will leave graciously from office if he loses the election. And there's a very real possibility of that happening. As someone who had daily access to Donald Trump and to U.S. national security, how do you foresee this unfolding if the president won't leave graciously, as you're putting it? Well, I think uh, a lot depends on how quickly the outcome becomes known, uh, whether there are delays in counting because of mail-in ballots and early voting, long lines on Election Day, a lot, a lot of which we should be able to handle, uh, but which could delay the uh, result in several states. Uh, Trump has said uh, he can't lose unless there's fraud. And that's a very troubling statement. Uh, I don't, uh, I'm not as alarmist as some people. I don't assume he's going to hold on to his desk and refuse to leave. But I do think there could be turmoil uh, if he thinks confusion and chaos uh, 
can help him hang on, can help affect recounts and contests. Uh, I think there's every prospect he'll engage in. When it comes to the relationship with alliances like NATO and the international community and, and allies like Canada, what happens if Donald Trump wins a second term? Well, I think I think many of these alliances are potentially in jeopardy. Uh, as I recount in the book, he came very close at the NATO summit in uh, June of 2018 to deciding to withdraw from NATO. And, uh, you know, many of his decisions in the first term were ba made on the basis of American politics, what would be the blowback if he decided one way rather than another. In other words, not based on the merits of the policy proposals under consideration, but what's the political reaction? Now, look, every Democratic leader takes politics into account in foreign policy decisions, no question about it. But for Trump, sometimes it was not just uh, a factor, it was the factor. And if he's reelected, the main political constraint on him is removed. That guardrail is gone. And uh, I, I think people will be very surprised with a lot of his decisions in a second term, uh, where freed from this political constraint, uh, he'll do simply what his idea at the moment is, rather than think even in longer political terms. China has been uh, a significant issue for Canada, in particular because we have two Canadians detained there, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Uh, a lot of concern about their future. How dedicated was the president really to trying to get them freed? He'd say that he was raising it uh, with the Chinese president, but we never really had a sense here in Canada uh, of how determined he was or how forceful he was in those negotiations. Well, I think the administration as a whole was very determined because what the Chinese did I think was uh, bare their fangs. Uh, they took the mask off. They took their coronavirus mask off. And uh, uh, when the U.S. sought extradition of uh, the Huawei CFO, Meng Wanzhou, they responded by completely illegitimately seizing these two Canadians. Uh, they've, they've recently threatened the United States by seizing Americans in China. This, this, is, this is the picture of an authoritarian government and how it deals with foreigners. So it's obviously extremely unfair and unpleasant for the two Canadians who are still in uh, captivity in China. But I just urge everybody to consider whether we confront this kind of behavior now together, or we wait 20 years when China feels even stronger. If this is the way they behave, when relations are supposed to be good, how will they behave later? It's a very, very revealing incident about the government in China. Do you think that the Canadian government should be taking a tougher line with China? Yeah, I think it's. T I think we all have to take a tougher line. The Chinese have abused the international trading system. Uh, they they have stolen intellectual property. They have engaged in forced technology transfer. They discriminate discriminate against foreign businesses and investors. Uh, they have gone through an enormous military buildup. Uh, they're seeking hegemony in the East China Sea, the South China Sea. Within the past six weeks, they've initiated two armed attacks against Indian forces along the line of actual control in the Himalayas. They've built up their nuclear capabilities. Uh, th this is a country with, uh, with an agenda that they're pursuing. All the while, they've become more authoritarian uh, domestically. You can see what they're doing in Hong Kong. You can see what they're doing to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. I think many are familiar with their social metrics index, where they rate their citizens as to how good a citizen they are. Uh, just think about that uh, for the future. So 
uh, it, it's not it's not pleasant to contemplate. But I think if we're going to change Chinese behavior, uh, now's the time to get together and do it in a uni unified fashion. What do you think the biggest national security threat is to our country in Canada? Well, I think uh, I think China poses the biggest existential threat to the West as a whole in the 21st century, and uh, it's not inevitable that this had to happen. Uh, you know, but our our policies really in the West as a whole were premised on incorrect assumptions going back to the reforms Deng Xiaoping initiated in China in the mid 1980s, when people thought they're moving away from Marxist principles, they're moving toward market principles. Uh, this will change their international behavior and it will change their domestic behavior. And specifically, they'll become more democratic. That has not happened. Uh, uh, Xi Jinping is the most authoritarian leader in China since Mao Zedong, and there's no indication that's going to change. Ambassador Bolton, we truly appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Well, thank you very much for having me. Keep listening for the West Block's exclusive interview with Seniors Minister Deb Schult. We'll get to the bottom of just what she's been doing throughout the pandemic, which has stricken seniors, and how the government plans to help Canada's seniors tackle the second wave. Last week, I sat down with Seniors Minister Deb Schult, and that was an interview that revealed something I wasn't expecting from me or from the minister. The emotion around how COVID-19 has struck our seniors and just what the government is planning to do, because while they've recognized they need to do more for seniors and promised lots of big ideas, we're waiting to see a lot of that turn into action. You can find that full interview on this week's bonus podcast episode of The West Block. But as promised, here's the shorter version of it right now. Minister, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Seniors are the people who have so much been at the focus of this pandemic that we've all been suffering through, but they've suffered so disproportionately to the rest of the population. You're the minister for seniors. A lot of Canadians, I think, don't even know we have a minister for seniors. So can you tell me a little bit about what you've been doing throughout the pandemic? Absolutely. Yeah, and it's been a real privilege to serve as the senior uh, minister. Um, it's been incredibly difficult for seniors across Canada. First, we know that they've had some financial difficulties because there were added costs as a result of the pandemic. They've had uh, to be staying home more uh, because you know they're more vulnerable. So they've ended up having more issues with isolation and access to services and supports. And obviously we have the seniors that are in long-term care and that's a, a tragedy that's occurred in Canada with so many lost to, with the pandemic. With 85% of the deaths being long-term care facilities and, and most of those being seniors, do you think that the Canadian government has failed seniors in COVID-19? Uh, no, I would say that the Canadian government has uh, stepped up and obviously uh, it is a jurisdiction that is with the provinces and territories, but we've been there right from the very beginning to help with financial support with the Canadian forces when asked to, uh, to intervene and those that uh, were spiking uh, and having difficulties. We also uh, provided $3 billion to support in essential workers uh, top-up of wages to help make sure that we had the employees that we needed in the long-term care facilities because there was a, a shortage of, of people being able to serve in those facilities. One of the promises your government had made back, it feels like eons ago, but in the 2019 election was to increase the OAS. Um, 
we had talked about this with the finance minister, we've talked about it with others. Uh, the government has said that they are still committed to doing this, but it was supposed to happen by July. It has not happened. Mm -hmm. Are you still committed to increasing the OAS for seniors and when can seniors expect to see that money? Absolutely. You saw in our throne speech that we've recommitted to uh, to providing those 75 and above 10% um, increase in their old age security. But during the pandemic, what we were focused on is making sure seniors got an amount of money right away. So we, we were making sure that we were focusing on those seniors that needed it during the pandemic and that's why we did what we did. So, so do you have a sense of a timeline on when they could see the OAS increase? So we've committed to it in our platform. We'll be working on that as we move forward. So stay tuned. Your government has promised uh, guidance, national guidance on mm -hmm. long-term care homes. Yeah. When can we expect to see that? So uh, we are working already. The process has started. The Prime Minister had conversations with the, the Premiers uh, to uh, initiate the conversation on how we're going to move forward with national standards. So that process has already started. Uh, there'll be lots of conversations and obviously we'll be uh, sharing the information as we move forward. I'm curious to know when it comes to those standards, what are your thoughts on how you enforce them? Is it, for example, the provinces committing to having regular inspections of these homes? Is it making healthcare dollars contingent on promises, promising to make these implementations? Because I think people are hungry for the idea that there should be standards nationally in the mm -hmm. homes, but, but how do you make that a reality for the vulnerable people who are in those homes? So these are the important conversations that we'll have to be having with the provinces and territories. You know, how, how do we move forward? How can we work with them to support them? And there are a variety of different ways to do it. And uh, those are the conversations that we'll be undertaking. Are you concerned about seniors' mental health? Absolutely. I mean, the second wave, you just think your heart breaks for these folks who are in long-term care homes. Yeah, it's emotional for me too. <laughs> I can see it in your eyes. Well, who I'll have dementia. You, I, I mean, I'll tell you why because I had my mother-in-law in a long-term care facility and she passed away in June. So I am totally uh, aware of the challenges that families have had across Canada. I've got my father-in-law in a senior's residence and the challenges that he has with us not being able to see him and, uh, and the mental health, uh, the strain of him losing his wife, not being able to see her as she deteriorated because we weren't able to be with her. So it is very emotional. I'm emotional too because I've, I've, I've lived it. And, um, and I hear the stories and I'm on the phone and I got the emails and I'm with people every day that are struggling with this issue. So um, we are seized with how do we uh, address that uh, isolation. And I talked a little bit about the New Horizons for Seniors program and how we've put more money in that and how that is helping not just in the communities but in long-term care centers too because we provided money for those devices to be distributed. And I can tell you that was a lifeline and how we connected with our mother-in-law, but with my mother-in-law before she passed. She was able to see us on the screen and we were able to talk to her. It's not the same, we couldn't hold her hand, but we could at least see her and know that she was being cared for well. Those were important things to know and you can really only do that when you see people. Minister, a lot of seniors are frustrated because they feel that they did not receive uh, the funding that other groups did. They saw money going to people who had lost their jobs. They saw money going to students, to young people, and they're saying, look, I can't go back to work. I've lost my savings. Why isn't the government doing more? Why isn't the government supporting seniors more financially? Well, thank you very much for that because, uh, you know, we have... Uh, being focused on seniors and delivering financial support for seniors. 
And what we did in July was provided those on old age security an additional $300 tax-free. Uh, those who are on guaranteed income supplement, they got uh, an additional $200. So if it, it, for couples that were on guaranteed income supplement, they got an additional $1,500. That is, uh, if you include it with the GST top-up, they got $1,500 of direct financial support tax-free. What about seniors who aren't low-income seniors? How much would they have seen? So if they're on old age security, so they're talking 6.7 million seniors would have received individually $300 and couples would have received $600. And what about those who say $300 wasn't very much if, if you've seen your investments tank? So, you know, uh, in terms of investments, you know, we went uh, to look at how we could help there, and that's where we did the registered retirement income fund reduction of 25% to try to help those you know, with, with investments. Minister, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it. That's this week's episode of the West Block Podcast. I'll be back here next week with the latest from Parliament Hill. Who knows what this week will bring? Everyone is an interesting one and a challenge. We'll see you next Sunday. Take care.